So I'd like to introduce our next speaker. Uh, and I have to say, she is one of my coffee heroes. Uh, Aida Badal is a fifth-generation El Salvadorian coffee producer who owns four farms located along the slopes of Santa Ana. Finca Kilimanjaro, Finca Los Alpes, Finca Mauritania, and Finca Tanzania. Aida approaches her craft with depth and vision, striving to learn everything about her coffee and to achieve its full potential. The Battle family has been involved in El Salvador's coffee industry since the 1800s, where Aida's great-great-grandfather, a coffee producer, was the first to plant the Bourbon variety within the country, which is now famous to El Salvador. Aida is one of a handful of growers that has put El Salvadorian specialty coffee on the map and has made Santa Ana Mountain Range the hottest strip of land in the world of coffee, pioneering different processing methods, and amazing Verata work. One of the most admired women in coffee, it's a dream come true for me to see Aida on the Tampa Tantrum stage. I just wouldn't take no for an answer. And I know you're going to learn a lot in the next 20 minutes. Please give it up for Aida and Mr. James Hoffman. Thank you, Steve. Take a seat. All right. So we're just going to talk a little bit about you. So let's start. Um, let's start with the farms. If you, uh, up on screen, there's some pretty, uh, pretty famous images there for many of us. Did, did these farms always have these images, or did you create these? I created them. Awesome. Okay. All right, well, you came to coffee when? November 2002. 2002, so about nearly 14, well... Yeah, 12, years. Years. 12 years ago, 12 years ago. <laughs> Excuse my maths. Um, well, let's talk very quickly about El Salvador. Uh, El Salvador is located in Central America, and it is the smallest country there. We're located between, we border, I'm sorry, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras. When you say small, how long would it take me to drive right across the country? Three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. Okay, so... Where in the country are you located? On the eastern part of it. So, what am I looking for on this map? Where so, on the eastern part, you have the Apaneca Ilamatepec mountain range. Okay. And, and your farms are where? On the slopes of the Santa Ana volcano. Okay. And that, it's interesting. Uh, many people don't really talk about the regions of El Salvador, but they do talk about Santa Ana. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is there something special there? Well, it's always been called the Golden Belt, and most COE farms, most COE winners have come from that area. Did you know that? Did you know that it was a special area for coffee when you came back? I'd heard it was the Golden Belt, but I didn't know how special it really was. Okay, so you, you came back in 2002, mm-hmm. and you'd been away. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where had you been? Uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. All right. Um, and you came back to, to run the farms. Mm-hmm. Who'd been running them up, up until this point? My father. Okay, so you, you came and took over. Uh, what did you know about coffee at that point? Nothing. No, nothing? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> well, growing up in um, you know, El Salvador, we had the Civil War, and that's one of the reasons we moved away. And the farm area was a really uh, conflicted area that we really couldn't go up, so... That's why I didn't grow up going. And the, the Civil War ended 
in 92. 92. So it was quite a while afterwards that you came back. Mm -hmm. what, what brought you back? I don't know. I thought it'd be something cool to do. I mean, fifth generation coffee producer, so I figured I'd give it a try. All right. Um, now, so you come back in. Now, it's a little bit of a difficult topic, but um, in that part of the world, is it unusual or challenging to be a woman in charge of a coffee farm? Yes, it is challenging. It's gotten a lot better but it was really tough when I first moved back there. Are you culturally quite unusual? Yes. Okay. And uh, is, that, is that indicative of, of coffee specifically or just society in El Salvador? Pretty much society. It's gotten a lot better, but you, know, you still have that stereotype that farmers should be men. Okay, so you come back in November 2002. Your first harvest starts probably around then, pretty much. Um, Last week, December. Last week. Oh, that late. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, and your first, your first production, I suppose, you enter into a competition. I did. We entered um, the Cup of Excellence, uh, two out of the three farms I was managing at the time. And how did they do? Out of 336 farms, we came in first and 16th. That's, um, that's pretty special. What, so you came in, did you... Did you get involved right away with how the farm was running in, in, in harvesting? Yes. Okay, and what, what was important to you when you came back in? Um, well, for me, it was, uh, you know, to learn mu as much as I could from not only my father, but the workers and the farm managers. And obviously during the harvest, that was a great time to kind of enter into that. But you gave, I think from the beginning, pretty specific directions around harvest time. Yes, since I didn't grow up doing it or had not been involved in any other harvest, to me it was common sense to pick ripe since you're dealing with a coffee cherry of fruit. I think we have some images so we can mm -hmm. uh, talk through this a little bit more. Oh. So I'll skip you in. So um, just quickly across those farms, let's mm -hmm. discuss these before we get too, too detailed into picking because I want to. You, you're growing a mixture of varieties. Yes, the, on some of the farms we have the majority of Mauritania in Tanzania would be Bourbon, and a little bit of um, Pacamara, and then we have Tipica in Kenya, and some of the other farms. Now, El Salvador grows a lot of Bourbon, mm -hmm. uh, but you, it also grows a lot of Pacas. It does. But you don't have any. We do, but very little, okay. less than 1%. And uh, to many of us interested in varieties, Kenya is a confusing word to see there, because it's not a variety that we know. What, what do you mean by Kenya? There's a family brought it over um, in the 1900s, a Kenya variety, so we don't know what it is. I mean, I've had people visit and they say it's an SL28, others say it's an SL34, but since we've never had it tested, we just call it Kenya in El Salvador. And how much of this do you have? Uh, Kilimanjaro is 80% Kenya. 80%. Mm -hmm. And so who planted that? The previous owner. Okay. So my father bought that farm in 1973. So he inherited that. Mm -hmm. And did he, did he always know it was a little bit different? He did. He did. The cherry is, there's, let's see, less cherries per pound, if that makes sense. So it's a larger cherry. Okay. And then he heard that the quality was good. Now, the next thing we, we're, we're going to talk about for today, uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to be processing. Mm -hmm. So the things that you do post-harvest. 
Now, we're not going to dive through them too much at this point, but how long have you been playing with processes? About nine years. Nine years. Mm -hmm. And let's start with the most obvious one here. When you say traditional washed. So the traditional washed in El Salvador is uh, 12 hours dry fermentation, wash, patio, dry. And that's pretty standard in any washed coffee, that kind of practice in El Salvador? Yes. Now, the fermentation times will vary depending on the water pH level, the humidity, and the temperature at the mill. Okay. And it, is, is stuff like humidity in the air a factor, or is it just straight temperature? But also the humidity in the air. Okay, cool. Um, looking through these, and we are going to dive more into detail on this, did uh, the last one at the bottom... Sumatra style. Did you make this word up? Yes, I did. <laughs> Sumalvador? Sumalvador. That's a good word. Um, all right, well, let's talk, let's talk fruit a little bit more. Um, you have a reputation for a focus on ripeness of fruit that I think set you apart pretty early on as a coffee producer. So when you're talking to pickers, what are you trying to get them to do? Um, we need to have them pick uh, the blood red and the burgundy red cherries uh, for any wash process. If you think of um, of plums, you know, the, the blood red will give you that bright acidity, and then the burgundy one gives you more of that sweetness, and that's exactly what's happening in coffee. So um, for me, it's important for them to, to have these... Uh, equal amounts, if you would, in the wash processes. And then in naturals, and the pulp naturals, we tend to have more burgundy cherries. Now, I think in the, the world of coffee, we've known the importance of ripeness for a long time. And yet, because coffee's hand-picked, we don't always achieve what we want in terms of ripeness. Now, that's mostly because a picker is paid, if I understand right, he's paid by the volume or weight of cherries or he or she, has picked in one day. Is that correct? That's correct. In El Salvador, it's called an arroba, which is 25 pounds of cherry. So about 12 kilos of cherry. Is that... How much is that? About a basket full. A big ba Okay, like mm -hmm. a basket full. Now, as, as a picker, if to earn as much as possible, the goal for me should surely be pick as much as I can, just get as many full baskets as possible. So how do you stop me just picking unripes, semi-ripes, whatever is in front of me? We pay a lot more for the ripe cherries. And is, uh, how do you grade how well I've done? If I turn up with my basket, this well, way? Yes, and basically it would, these images um, will show is most of the pickers I've been lucky enough to be working with since I started in coffee, and a lot of them know. So a good picker will spend no more than five minutes sorting through their cherry because they've done such a, a great job at the farms. But if I pick a more uniform ripe or more of the blood and the burgundy reds, I get paid more yes. for my basket, basically. Uh, and it's, out of curiosity, where, where are the pickers from usually? Around the area. A lot of them live, uh, a lot of them own small farms around our farms and around, I would say, 70% of the pickers we have have and their that, own farms. Is that unusual? Uh, do many farms in Central America have kind of migrant pickers move through, or is it typical to have pickers who are locals? 
We have a little bit of both nowadays, but mostly from our farms, it's people that live around there. So they, you know, we saw last night producers tasting coffee to mm -hmm. understand that. Have these guys, the pickers, tasted the coffee? Yes. So um, one of the things I do is, you know, have them taste the coffee, and that way they can taste the difference between unripes and ripes, and also I'll give them a green banana and a ripe banana. And has this, do you think, for those that still have farms, has that impacted the way that they harvest their own coffee? Yes, for sure. Because the mill will pay them a premium also for doing that. Okay. So let's, let's dive a little bit more into processing. Um, because it's a, a sort of aspect of coffee that I think the consumer end of us, the passionate end of us here, we misunderstand. We think that coffee farmers choose a process based on the flavor that it produces in the coffee for us. Whereas in truth, for most producers, it's about ensuring that the coffee is worth as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think your openness to new processes was just because you hadn't had the experience, you know, you hadn't grown up in coffee with the kind of habits of tradition? Or were you always interested in exploring this more? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, it's definitely interesting to see how other um, origins are doing it, how other farms process. And we see we're going to talk through a number of styles from other countries. Have you traveled to those places? No, I have not. So how are you getting the information, the techniques? Uh, my coffee buyers, the ones that do get to travel. So, so they're the kind of the bees cross-pollinating between the flowers. Exactly. Cool. So. Which, which, uh, which buyer kind of pushed you down the path first of playing with processing? Uh, Peter Giuliano, who w used to be with Counterculture, and also Tim Hill, who is the current buyer. We saw Peter in the film <laughs> last night. Um, so, your traditional wet processing, if we treat that as a baseline, um, we compare it both in terms of process, uh, cherries, and also flavor, to pulp natural, what, what are the main differences? Um, the acidity levels, okay, for sure, and then the intensity of the sweetness in the body. So less acidity, more sweetness? Mm -hmm. And are you looking for, again, that same mixture of blood and burgundy? Yes. Well, on the pulp natural, it's more burgundy, because we're trying to draw out that body and the sweetness. Okay. Talk us through the pulp natural process just very quickly. So the pulp natural, you, deep, you remove the uh, skin, of the cherry and it goes straight to patios or drying beds with the mucilage still on it. Now, nearby there's a pretty similar process that's common. In Costa Rica we see a lot of honey processing. Differences? The difference from my understanding between honey and pulp natural is I can't do honey since I don't have an aquapulper. I don't mechanically remove the mucilage from the coffee. So what, what's happening with your pulp natural is we're, we're just as if we were going to wash the coffee, we're just going to pop the seeds out of the cherry, mm -hmm. and then those sticky seeds, we're going to dry those. Exactly. Whereas a honey, how's that different? I think with the honey, they control the amount of mucilage that's left on the beans. Cool. And how long would you dry this for? We would dry this for seven to eight days. Raised beds or patios? It's up to the buyer. So, so interesting. So I can, uh, if I'm buying from you, I can almost order my drying process. Exactly. You could do whatever you want. 
Cool. And pop natural, pretty pretty common process around the world. It was interesting to me to discover that it was invented by a Brazilian coffee equipment manufacturing company called Pinalense. I kind of like that it was a process that someone invented. So let's let's go to the next one. So what we haven't talked about in the wet process is fermentation. The period we've squeezed the seeds out, they're sticky, we're going to ferment them for a little while. Now in the wash process, how are you doing that? Well, it's the coffee's depulped and then directly placed in a fermentation tank. And you let it sit for about 12 hours. And there's no water there, it's just no sat. water. Is no. it covered or exposed to the open air? It's exposed to the open air. And is that, again, is that common in El Salvador? Yes. Interesting. Now, when you're, you're monitoring this, you said it was different every time. What are you looking for? What are you testing? How do you know that fermentation is done? Uh, pretty much by the, by the feel of the beans. So you just have to get your hand in and, and, and how often do you start to check? You say at about 12 hours, do you start checking at about 10? Yeah, they usually start checking around 10 hours. Okay, and, and tell me the difference in feeling. Uh, the pulp natural would be a lot slimier. So the, with the mucilage still on the beans, it's a lot slimier than when it's ready. It's a lot coarser once it's done. The mucilage has been removed from the beans. And then you would, in a wash process, you just wash as much off as you, you could at that point, right? Exactly. Perfect. Uh, now, kind of curious. Oh. Let's come back. There we go. So we're into the different style processes, which to me are so, so interesting because I don't think anyone in the world's really exploring the effect of process on flavor as much as you. Because here, you know, we, we can taste literally the same coffee from the same trees, played with a little bit differently. Now, what is an Ethiopia-style fermentation? So the Ethiopia-style fermentation is 48 hours underwater fermentation. Um, we add a little bit of fresh water every 12 and turn the coffee, kind of give it a little bit of a wash because we have to stop the fermentation process. Okay. And it takes, I suppose, is the reasoning it takes much longer? Because without air, it's a different kind of bacterial reaction in there or different kind of whatever's driving the fermentation? I believe so. And then after it's washed, we let it soak for 24 hours okay. under fresh water. Just to, just to soak? Just to soak. So even though in a traditional wash the, the parchment is clean, we might start drying it. Here, we're just going to soak it again. Exactly. And how does this taste differently? Mm, a lot more body, a lot more sweetness. Interesting. And the Kenya style? The Kenya style is, again, 48 hours, uh, adding fresh water every 12 and turning it a little bit to once again stop the fermentation process wash and then soak under fresh water for 24 hours. Okay, and how is this different in flavor? It gives it that sparkling acidity. Okay, so, so a little bit of that crispness, that freshness of Kenyan coffees comes from that process? I believe so. Interesting. Let's go to the next one. So Burundi style. Now, before you, I didn't really understand that there was a Burundi style. What is this? So Burundi style, it starts the first 24 hours Ethiopian style, so underwater fermentation. The next 24 hours is Kenya. And then once again, wash and soak. So it's a little bit of, it's a cross between the two. It's kind of halfway house. Exactly. And taste. 
taste, this might be one of my favorite ones for sure because you have that little bit of that sparkling acidity and then you've got the juiciness coming through the body. Crazy. I, it's the, I just want to taste all of it side by side. I, you know, I think anyone here watching is just like, I really now want to just go and taste all of these things. Now, as a coffee buyer, if I come in, is there a, is there a point at which I might ask you to do something and you would say no? No, I'm willing to try anything. What I would do, though, is start with a small bucket. Okay. So all my experiments have started in small quantities. How, how, how small are we talking here? A five-gallon bucket. So it would be about 25 pounds of cherry okay, that we'd so start off with. If it all goes horribly wrong, I, I can still pay for that as a buyer. Because mm -hmm. I assume the deal is you'll do it if I pay for it. Exactly. So if it goes well, then maybe we can scale it up year two. Mm -hmm. So how long have you, sort of when did you start adding processes? Um, about nine years ago. Okay. And it took a while for us to perfect them. But Burundi style, is that a recent addition? Or you, you've been doing all of them for that long? Exactly. Interesting. And uh, how often do coffee buyers come to you with another new idea? Every year they tweak a little bit. Since I give them a form, kind of an order form, so they kind of, you know, do their own thing. They might want traditional, but they might want it uh, raised bed drying. They might want to soak it for 12 hours. They might want to have wet fermentation there. So they're altering it a little bit. Interesting. And uh, is it, uh, I suppose, it, is it kind of fun for you to kind of have them go and do all the research for you? You know, they go and find out about processes and bring them back? It is, because to me it's just fascinating, you know, how just extending fermentation or, you know, having it underwater or dry or, and then soaking, how that is changing the flavor profile. It's the same farm, but, you know, you, in your traditional, it will give you kind of like the base in the cup, and then the, the different fermentation styles just highlight different attributes. So it's quite fascinating. All right, so the, the next process we need to talk about I think, um, is the soak, is the most, I suppose, controversial in the coffee world. Because when you naturally process, when you dry process coffee, some people go crazy for these. Some people think that they're terrible because the process, all you taste is process and you no longer taste where the coffee is from. You know what I mean? Like every natural, primarily, tastes of a natural process rather than tastes of being from El Salvador or tastes of being from Ethiopia. Does, does that make sense? It does, but I would say in El Salvador, you know, when I was first approached to do the naturals um, and I got to cup some Ethiopians, what I did notice is, you know, they are very heavy on the blueberries to where coffees from El Salvador are very heavy on the red berries. So there is a difference. For sure. Now... As a process, traditionally, this was done because there wasn't really any access to water and it was pretty much the most effective way to, to dry the fruit or process the fruit post-harvest. It wasn't done from a quality perspective. So how do you approach this process from a quality-driven perspective? What are you worrying about here? Well, here it's crucial. You know, the first 72 hours for pulp natural or natural are crucial and you cannot stop moving it. Um, and the way these rows are laid out, 
of coffee, we don't have the women or the men, whoever's raking, stepping on the cherries because then you're turning it into a pulp natural. Sure. And how long are you drying these down for? It, 10 to 12 days. Okay. And then when do you kind of uh, finish the coffee, so to speak? When, at which point are they, do you remove that dried husk of a cherry? Right before we export. Okay. So it sits almost, you might sit most washed coffees in parchment. Here this sits in dried cherry. Exactly. And the parchment inside. Okay. Last question from me. Uh, and I think then we move into some audience questions. You did something unusual with uh, the outside of the coffee fruit. Tell me about that. Yes, that would be the cascara. So cascara, it's a Spanish word. How does it translate? Peel, skin. Okay, so it's like the outside of an orange would be cascara? Exactly. Okay, and so you started processing this so that it became a separate product. What, why? I walked into the cupping lab one day and they had just, uh, we were about to cup the natural, or they were getting the natural ready to be cupped the following day and they had done a mini dry mill of it. And the smell I got, which was hibiscus, papaya, was quite fascinating. I was like, oh, you know, let me grab a glass, add water, throw some of it in there and that's how it came to be. So, so then I just... called my buyers and I was like, you've got to try this. <laughs> You just, it just came to you, you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. And you discovered later that it was actually quite a traditional thing, right? Exactly. Called Kirsch? Kisher? Kisher. Kisher. I think, yeah, I think parts of Yemen had been drinking it. Have you actually tried Yemeni Kisher? Yes. It's terrible. Awful. It's, it you, is, as a matter of fact, you guys <laughs> sent me some. It's the worst. <laughs> um, and, I mean, this is interesting because traditionally pulp, or, or sorry, the, the coffee fruit, had been a waste product. Right, or it's being composted, or used in fuel to dry some coffees. And well. uh, in terms of producing this stuff, which, is it only on the natural process that you can have this? No, actually that's how it started, and now we actually collect the pulp after the coffee is um, wet milled. Mm -hmm. We clean it off and then start drying it. And that way, the first time we did the cascara, since it did come from the natural, it was little bits and pieces. Um, just floating around in water, but doing it this way, they kind of plump up to make it look like cherries are floating in your drink. It's beautiful. And has it been heartening to see other producers do this as well? Yeah, it's good that you know people are opening up and trying new things. That's been really nice to see. It's from a from a buyer's perspective, and also someone who who's trying to communicate coffee to people. It's actually a really lovely moment when you've talked about coffee being a fruit, and you can show them photos, but there's still a little roasted brown bean, and then you can just make a tea and be like, no, 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 it's fruit. Taste the fruit, and it's not only interesting, but it's also completely delicious. Exactly. So, how much of that do you produce now? Oof. Um, wow. I don't know a lot. It's a lot of volume. You know, 25 pounds is a huge bag. It is a big bag. It makes me feel very strong to pick up a bag that big in the roastery and just lift it up by myself. So it's good. Um, all right. Well, at this point, I'll say thank you so much for talking to us about what you do. Thank you very uh, much. An audience, please. We have a round of applause for Aida Bache. Thank you. Now we're going to... Steve is going to come up and join us on stage. Welcome. I'm going to, I'm going to shuffle up, actually. Yeah, no, you should. Oh. Sit by you there. Join us. Thank you. Super interesting. 
Um, I feel like I've just been eavesdropping on a chat you've had, um, you know, just like, yeah, two friends sitting down, talking. It was great. So, tell me a little bit more about growing coffee in El Salvador and the unique challenges that that brings. I mean, we all know kind of it's a small country, but an unsafe country. Yes, definitely through the years we've had um, more gang-related issues. So, unfortunately, it's, it's getting secured. Gang, gang, gang issues. How does that affect the way you work on the farm? Is that does do you have to have security while you're on the farm? Is you know do you have people patrolling? Uh, what happens when buyers come to visit? Well, I have two permanent security guys with me at all times, and during harvest we always have security there patrolling the farms, making sure there's no cherry theft as well. I'm going to turn a question on to James as well, as James is a buyer from, from yourself. How unique is Aida um, as a producer that you get this order form come through at the beginning of the year saying what would you like and how would you like me to do it? Um, James, for me, it's, uh, it's wonderful because Aida is able to grow coffees and process them for us uh, in a way that lets them become a really useful tool in not only making people happy who like drinking coffee, but communicating a bit more about what happens. Of the processes, uh, we buy three uh, from Kilimanjaro. We buy the traditional washed, the pulp natural, and the natural. And we always sell them together because the goal is that somebody buys them and actually has a little moment where they understand one part of the coffee chain. And they have just a moment of understanding how process can impact flavor. And I think that's a really beautiful moment for someone to have. I'm going to give you guys a chance to ask a question in a moment, but I'm enjoying this too much. How have you found uh, the time traveling? We've, we've been to Korea, we've been to China, and we've been here in Taiwan for a few days. How have you found this, the, the travel and seeing all of these other countries and all of these coffee shops? Has it inspired you in any way to kind of go back? 
It has. It's been really quite fascinating. Before, I'd only been open or exposed, I'm sorry, to the Japanese market. So getting to see all these different countries and the culture, the coffee culture here has been just awesome. It's been great. Stephen, when Aida, because today this Japanese食物,一路从韩国,然后到中国上海,然后现在要来到台北,他问Aida经历了这样子的咖啡之旅,对他回去会不会有什么样的影响?Aida说,其实还蛮新颖的经验,因为一直以来他所接触的客人其实
James pays very well. Next question. There, just down here. If you've got a microphone for. We will go. We will come back next. I promise. Okay. Uh, 想请阿伊达可不可以多谈一些关于 Smart Trust Style 的实验跟结果，他做的状况是如何的？ Ooh, the Sumatra is an interesting style、um, because, to me, it was kind of freaking me out that we had to wet hold the coffee, and I thought it was going to turn white, but it doesn't. It turns this beautiful jade color.、Um, but apparently, my Sumavador is too clean. <laughs> I've been told by my by Tim from Counterculture. He said I need to dirty it up so it tastes more like a Sumatra. Sumavador. <laughs> 啊，我这边翻译一下。他说，呃，其实，在做的时候，他觉得就是这个苏门答腊这个处理法有一点快要把它搞疯了。他一直在等那个果实会慢慢变白色，但是他一直都是还果那个种子一直都还是非常的绿。然后，而且他觉得对他来说，他做的苏门答腊处理法的豆子味道太干净了。很多人跟他说，苏门答腊豆子不不应该是怎么样的干净的。So when you say wet hulling, essentially. After washing, you're gonna get the parchment off the coffee when it's that wet. No, it goes on the patio until we bring it down to about 25% moisture, and then it has to be. Since our the mill equipment, the dry milling equipment is not made or wasn't built for the, that high of a、uh, moisture level, it has to all be done by hand. Oh wow! Yeah. 刚刚 James 在问说，刚刚他讲的那个湿钵就是要等那个种子变白色的阶段。他问是不是呃前面那个湿式处理之后，是不是就直接把它剥开？然后阿伊达回答，呃不是，就是他们把它剥开之后，他们会晒在那个广场上，就是那个水泥地，他们会晒在广场上面，等到它的豆子里面的水分大概到了百分之二十五的时候，他们就会去进行脱壳。可是嗯、呃，因为那边当地的。那个处理厂，它的器具没有办法去处理那样子的湿度的豆子，所以，呃，他们必须要手工去剥那些东西。That was a big one. Well done. <laughs>、um, there was a question at the back there with the the hand. I did promise we would move off the front row. <laughs> <laughs> 我刚有说我会请让后面的观众。Well,、uh, just curiosities regarding dry fermentations.、Uh, you mentioned the dry from fer fermentations. Open up in the air, is in the room, and did you put up any extra artificial yeast, and how's the flavor taste like? Uh, no. Oh, just translate the question first. Sorry. Oh, oh, that's yeah. 刚刚的问题是呃，阿伊达刚刚讲到干式的发酵，然后先生的问题是说，在做干式发酵的时候是放在室内呢还是室外？那如果放在室内的话，呃，有没有提供一些就是其他的菌种去做发酵？ So no, we have in past experiments added、uh, beer yeast and also wine yeast, and they didn't make a significant enough of a change that warranted the price of the yeast. <laughs> so we didn't do it again. He <laughs> I know it's very stupid to ask, and、uh, how how you prevent from 
the bugs, the insects, they probably might have a very, very bad influence on during the process of the dry fermentation. I hope I won't answer this question because I haven't really, we, we've never really had a problem with it. I mean, we don't cover them up or anything, but we don't really have a problem with it. A last chance for a question. Um, just one down here. We like the front row. The front row asks questions. It's good. I Kenya发酵法和那个Brownie-style发酵法的三种发酵的细微的差异，还有对后面的风味有什么样的影响？嗯，they're um, quite fascinating. As I mentioned before during the presentation, it's they're all unique. So it's hard sometimes because you know you're tasting, I've been cupping this coffee for 12 years. I'll give Kilimanjaro as, a, as an example. So to have it be to where you're cupping all these different processes and you know they're coming from the same farm and in some instances the same lot of cherry that was picked that day is, is really quite fascinating. I mean, there's, you know, um, you've got, once again, your traditional will be the base, and then the other ones will be just the different attributes being highlight, highlighted in the cup. Um,他只, 他基本上就是以传统的，先先是传统的处理法当做是它风味上面的基础，然后每一种不同的处理法就带再带多一点不同的东西进来。但是它没有办法告诉你怎么样细微的不一样。I could do this all day and have been for the past ten, and it's been amazing. You are a font of knowledge. Thank you for a great presentation. 已经认识他超过十年了，我非常高兴能够认识他。谢谢你今天来到这边跟我们大家谈谈话，谢谢。